Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 31, Numbers chapters 28 and 29. Well, last time we met, we began a two-chapter unit of Numbers 28 and 29 that I entitled The Calendar of Public Sacrifices. And these two chapters are ones that, like the long and complex biblical, genealogical, and tribal listings, can kind of make your eyes droop, right? And, and, and make your heads bob a little bit as you, you try to stay awake and focused on what, what's said about this. But I would really suggest that our rather typical disinterested and bored reaction to this kind of stuff is because we see the subject matter as irrelevant to us, meant only for an ancient time, or perhaps maybe because it's almost incomprehensible to our 21st century Western minds. And I emphasize the word Western because sacrifices and rituals into the service of gods are hardly a thing of bygone eras. They're current. They still happen in the bulk of the world. Uh, amongst most other religions than, than Judeo-Christian. The Bible, you know, makes sacrifice the center, the focal point, the heart of proper worship practices. The church, rightly so, makes Yeshua, his, his sacrifice, the believer's focal point of worship. But when it comes to the subject of our own participation in sacrifice and ritual, our, guy, our eyes kind of glaze over, and we really don't even know what that means. Now certainly I'm not in any way suggesting we ought to reinstitute animal sacrifice. Although the later chapters, by the way, of Ezekiel make it clear that with the new temple and the return of Messiah, this is going to happen. Right. However, I am suggesting that we cannot possibly even begin to grasp the boundless depth of meaning contained within God's ordained, Torah-based, authorized sacrificial system until we acknowledge it as valid and good and worth understanding. Now, a modern Hebrew commentator, W.G. Platt, said this about the subject of ritual biblical sacrifice. I think it's pretty good. He says... What do moderns consider primitive about such rituals? Doubtless, pre-biblical origins of sacrifice go back to beliefs that the gods desired food for their consumption. But the Torah itself no longer gives any warrant for the continuation of such beliefs, and Psalms 50 expressly disavows them. Most likely, it is the public nature of the ancient slaughtering process that's repellent to our current tastes. We prefer to hide the procedure behind the walls of abattoirs, where the animals are killed in a fashion no less bloody, but without making it necessary for the consumer to witness the life and death cycle, which goes into his pleasurable nourishment. Moreover, even when we share with others in the eating process we do not generally experience any of the genuinely worthy emotions which were usually engendered by the sacrifices of old. In the root meaning 
of the English word. We do not sacrifice. That is, we do not render holy anything we eat. This does not mean that our age ought to be ready for any reconsideration of cultic sacrifice, but it does suggest that when seen in its own context, the biblical order of animal offerings was a genuine form of worship that cannot be quickly dismissed with prejudicial contemporary judgments. You know, some time ago, Rabbi Baruch, our dear brother and teacher friend from Israel, told us that in his opinion, that when the temple in Jerusalem is rebuilt, which it will be, and when the animal sacrifices begin once again, which they will, that unlikely the fairly universal belief among Gentile Christians that these rituals will be viewed by Yehovah as a slap in his face, probably these sacrifices are going to be all about a commemoration of what Yeshua did. Further, that Christians need not consider these renewed sacrifices as a replacement of the Savior's atoning blood anymore then our celebration of Passover is a replacement for his death. You know, for us to sip a teaspoon of wine or grape juice and swallow down a tiny morsel of unleavened bread and think that through this, through this action, we have gained a thorough understanding of his sacrifice. A sacrifice that was prefigured in detail, by the way, by the Levitical sacrificial system is, is a grand and very naive miscalculation on our part. Okay. Only our diligent study of Torah, led by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, is going to remedy that situation for us. Okay. Last time, I enumerated and created a chart for you that pretty well summed up the four general types of biblical sacrifices, the Olah, the Hatat, the Asham, and the Shlamim. Now, we're not going to re- read all of chapter 28, though we will most of it. Right, so I'm going to try to frame for you a little easier means for our modern generation to comprehend the underlying meaning and structure of the Levitical sacrifices and the biblical feasts in, in kind of a general way. Turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 28, page 184 in your complete Jewish Bible. I'm going to start reading it, oh, I think, uh, verse 9. Read to the end. On Shabbat, offer two male lambs in their first year and without defect, with one gallon of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with olive oil and as drink offering. This is the bird offering for every Shabbat, in addition to the regular bird offering and its drink offering. At each Rosh Hodesh of yours, you are to present a burnt offering to Adonai consisting of two young bulls, one ram, seven male lambs in their first year and without defect, with six quarts of fine flour mixed with olive oil as a grain offering for the one ram, two quarts of fine flour mixed with olive oil as a grain offering for each lamb. This will be the burnt offering giving a fragrant aroma, an offering made by fire for Adonai. Their drink offerings will be two quarts of wine for a bull, one and one-third quarts for the ram, one quart for each lamb. This is the burnt offering for every Rosh Hodesh 
throughout the months of the year. Also, a male goat is to be offered as a sin offering to Adonai in addition to the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, is Adonai's Pesach, Passover. On the 15th day of the month is to be a feast. Matzah, unleavened bread, is to be eaten for seven days. The first day is to be a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. But present an offering made by fire, a bird offering to Adonai, consisting of two young bulls, one ram, seven male lambs in their first year. They're to be without defect for you. With their grain offering, fine flour mixed with olive oil. Offer six quarts for a bull, four for a ram, two for each of the seven lambs. Also a male goat is a sin offering to make atonement for you. You are to offer these in addition to the morning burnt offering, which is the regular burnt offering. In this fashion, you are to offer daily for seven days the food of the offering made by fire, making a fragrant aroma for Adonai. It's to be offered in addition to the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. On the seventh day, you are to have a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. On the day of the first fruits, when you bring a new grain offering to Adonai in your feast of Shavuot, you are to have a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. But present a bird offering as a fragrant aroma for Adonai, consisting of two young bulls, one ram, seven male lambs in their first year, and their grain offering. Fine flour mixed with olive oil, six quarts for each bull, four for a ram, two for each of the seven lambs, plus a male goat to make atonement for you. You're to offer these in addition to the regular bird offering and its grain offering. They're to be without defect with their drink offering. Could you turn down the temperature just a little bit? Thank you. Chapter 28 began by stating in the strongest possible language that the rituals and sacrifices and feasts that the Lord has ordained are not only to be followed, they're to be accomplished with precision and fully and in the manner and time and quantities he has prescribed. There are few options. And when there are options, it almost always has to do with making allowances for the poor who might not be able to afford one or more expensive animals as a sacrifice. It's the norm for the modern and rather relaxed church to make allowance for the poor or the debt-ridden to give nothing as offering of tithes to the Lord. But in the pattern of the sacrificial system, the Lord prescribes that all must offer up, even if, at times, it's necessarily small. Thus we find Israel standing on the threshold of centuries of promise as they camp east of the Jordan River and very impatient to enter their promised land. Their first and most important duty, in God's eyes, is to set up this calendar of public worship to the God of Israel. And this is in order to set up both lines of communication and communion between them and Yehovah. Thus, in these two chapters, we receive a long list of occasions on which sacrifices are to be made, and along with that, the kind and number of the sacrifices involved. Sacrifices are to be made daily and on the Shabbat, the Sabbath, 
And in addition, there are 30 days in each year that are marked for other special ritual sacrifices. Now, in looking at this chart that I prepared for you, you can see a number of distinctive features concerning these occasions of sacrifice. Jacob Milgram has done a wonderful job summing up the the distinctions between them. So I'm just going to quote him rather than try to improve upon them. Uh, First, the offerings are cumulative. That is, the offerings for the Sabbaths and the festivals are in addition to to the regular daily offerings. And the offerings for Rosh Hashanah, the new year, and in addition to the are in addition to the daily and even to the new moon offerings. Hence, should the new year fall on a Sabbath, there would be offered all of the following. The daily offering plus the Sabbath offering plus the new moon offering plus the new year's offering. What offering? The organizing principle of the calendar is according to the descending order of frequency. Daily, then Sabbath, then new moon, then the sacrifices for the festivals that follow in the calendar year beginning with Passover. Third, all the sacrificial animals mentioned are male animals. Bulls, rams, lambs as burnt offerings. Lamb the word for it just means young male. Okay. Olah offerings, and then even the goats as purification offerings, hataat offerings. Fourth, the sacrificial order is prescriptive, not descriptive. In actual practice, the purification offering would be sacrificed before the additional burnt offering. Fifth, the number seven and its multiples, 14 being two times seven, are very prominent in the number of animals that are being offered. Sixth, in addition to the frequency of the number seven in what is laid out in Numbers 28 and 29, there are other occurrences of the number seven. Seven biblical festivals, the seven-day unleavened bread and Sukkot festivals, the preponderance of festivals that occur in the seventh month, the seven festival days in addition to Sabbath on which all work is prohibited. Even more, we have the bulls required for Sukkot, Sukkot add up to 70, 10 times 7. The number of lambs on Sukkot is 7 times 7 times 2. The number of rams is 14, 7 times 2. The number of goats is seven. The everyday offering has always been called in Hebrew tamid. The animals for this were provided by the priesthood and sacrificed and offered up by the priests the burnt offering. The daily offering was performed on the great bronze altar at the tabernacle, later the temple, Every morning and every evening without fail. And it consisted of a, of a lamb plus a grain offering that was called a miha and a libation offering of wine. The Israelites considered the tamid as crucial to their very existence. They believed that as long as the tamid was observed, 
the walls of Jerusalem would stand and the Lord would protect them. Now let me remind you of something that can get kind of confusing. If you're not confused already. The most common term used for sacrifice in the Bible would appear to be burnt offering. But we really need to revise that. The problem is that a lot of rather sloppy scholarship has translated the very specific Hebrew word olah, the olah sacrifice, into burnt offering. But the reality is that there were several kinds of sacrifices each with its own divine purpose, each with its own name, and and, and even though every sacrifice does get burned up on the altar, they're not all named the burnt offering. Thus, it's very overly simplistic to label every sacrifice as the burnt offering. The daily sacrifice, the tamid, consisted of the olah, and the mincha, two different kinds of sacrifices. Now, there's no getting around it that virtually all Bible-era cultures sacrifice to gods. And as part of that system, they sacrificed food to the gods. And in the minds and purposes of these mystery religion cultures, the primary aim of the food was to feed the gods. Thus, they typically offered three daily sacrifices, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. This was not, though, the Hebrew view. In fact, it was nearly an opposite view, because the Israelite purpose was to offer up animals and grains food, not as sustenance for God, but as an acknowledgement that it is He that provides them with food. Now, in verse 7, we got an interesting instruction concerning the kind of libation offering to Yehovah. Now, too often, probably due to some modern understanding of just how seriously destructive addiction to alcohol can be to the user and to the family, the church often denies that wine, which contains alcohol, was actually prescribed by the Lord for these sacred rituals. So, biblical wine is typically said to be actually only grape juice. That's just not true. Yayin is the standard Hebrew word for wine. Wine, just like we think a wine. Yayin was a relatively low alcohol wine, used... Not only for some ritual, but also for everyday drinking, particularly with meals. However, there was a stronger drink called Shechar. And it was usually used in order to get tipsy or flat out drunk. But there actually was some God-ordained ritual use of Shechar. In fact, the Hebrew word shechar is often correctly translated in our Bibles as strong drink, and it was. But it could have been any number of alcoholic drink concoctions in which the alcohol level was significantly higher than yain, table wine. Sometimes the shechar was strong beer or ale made from grains. The biblical term 
old wine refers to fermented grapes, wine that's been left to ferment beyond typical. Therefore, it was older than regular wine, and so it had more alcohol in it. Old wine is one definition of shekhar. Now, as I just mentioned to you, the libation offering that is to accompany the twice-daily kamid is interestingly here specified as shekhar. Not only wine, but strong wine. I know what was wine, and not beer, because nowhere in the law is anything but grapes used as the source for this kind, this ritual kind of fermented libation offering, and that due to the needed symbolism of wine, which is joy. Joy. People will say, oh, it's blood. No. It's joy. An interesting fact of wine drinking is that it is often said that priests were not to drink yain, table wine, before they began their official time of temple duty. In fact, they were not prohibited to drink, uh, not prohibited from drinking table wine at all. They were prohibited from drinking shechar, stronger drink during those time periods. Those Hebrew laymen who had taken the vow of a Nazarite, could not drink Yayin or Shekhar. So for a Nazarite, it's more of a matter of being entirely prohibited for, uh, from partaking of alcohol, alcoholic beverage completely than it is only of drinking wine. Anyway, in verse 9, the Sabbath day sacrificial offering is specified. Two yearly rams together with the grain sacrifice. This is an addition now to the daily tamid and in addition to any other occasion that might have fallen on this particular Shabbat. Verse 11 begins with the occasion of the new moon, which for the Israelites marked the end of one month, the beginning of the next. It was an important monthly festival celebrated by all the families of Israel and its importance can be seen by the large number of sacrificial rams that were offered on this occasion. Seven this equaled the same number as the most important of the biblical events. Events: The libation offering is wine, regular wine, table wine, yain. Now, this would be a good time to point out something I think has great significance. As Rabbi Baruch and, and I have both lectured on, along with the advent of the coming new temple in Jerusalem will be renewed sacrificial worship. The sacrificial protocol for the renewed system is called out primarily in the book of Ezekiel and is generally acknowledged by Hebrews and Christians as an end times and millennial kingdom time frame for it. Therefore, the question that's usually asked about it is this. Is the renewed sacrificing that's not too far in our future a good thing or a bad thing? in the view of the fact that the Ezekiel system begins just before the return of Messiah and apparently continues on to his new, new kingdom, the one the call the Christians call the millennial kingdom, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Well, we've already covered that to some degree, and I generally agree with Rabbi Baruch that it seems likely 
that this renewed sacrificial system is going to be viewed by God as a good and required thing. One issue we'll find with Ezekiel's future sacrificial protocol is that it's a little bit modified from the one that we're reading about here in the Torah. As one might reasonably expect, since the one we're being instructed on in Torah is pre-Christ. While the one we're being instructed on in Ezekiel is not only after Yeshua's death and resurrection, but occurs at his return. So circumstances are wildly different, particularly in the spiritual side of things. This shift in details of some elements of the sacrificial system is something we've already seen in Torah. While in the wilderness, items like wine and oxen and grain would be difficult to come by, at least in real large volumes. However, once Israel entered the land of Canaan and settled there, these things would be much more readily available. Therefore, God has set down in the Torah pre-conquest sacrificial requirements in Exodus and to some degree Leviticus, while Numbers tends to deal mostly with the time after Israel has conquered Canaan. Now, one of the striking differences between the future Ezekiel system and the Torah system of Moses' era is that while the priesthood was to supply the daily tamid, the morning and evening burnt offerings, in the Torah version of the sacrificial protocol, it is the worshippers who are to provide the tamid in the Ezekiel vision. Okay. And while in verses 15 of Numbers 28, we see that there was to be a hata'at, a purification offering, to go along with the new moon celebration, as well as with all other special occasion sacrifices, except on Shabbat, we find, interestingly, that the hata'at is not at all present in Ezekiel's future sacrificial procedures. Now, we're not going to get into all the differences between the sacrificial system in Torah versus the one in Ezekiel because it's a really deep endeavor. All right, that could lock us up for weeks. All right. But when you see these differences, one can speculate that there is a significance in those differences. Some scholars simply say the differences are error. Okay. But I think it has to do with the far lesser significance of the priesthood in Ezekiel, in times, thousands and thousand year reign, and the much greater and central significance of the priesthood in Torah. Okay. I think it also has to do with the fact that sets the advent of Messiah no additional atonement apart from his blood is needed, nor is it even possible. Okay. In the Torah system of sacrifice, it was the chief job of the priests to sacrifice as a means of obtaining atonement for Israel. So while the priests' role in Torah and right on up to Yeshua's death and resurrection was the, were these indispensable, indispensable rituals that were needed for atonement for the people's sins, the Ezekiel style of priesthood is probably more of an ongoing service of commemoration of what God's done, particularly as references Jesus Christ's sacrifice to bring salvation.
Well, let's move on. But let me say this last little bit about the differences between Ezekiel and Torah as pertains to sacrificing is my opinion. I don't hold it up to you as indisputable fact. Okay? Now, next up in verse 16 are the Passover and unleavened bread sacrificial offerings. Now, this matter of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread can really be confusing, especially especially for a Gentile, because it seems that they run together, that that they became fused, and inseparable was not how it was prescribed early in the Torah and only became so out of practicality and tradition some years later. Passover began as but a one-day festival event. One day. Matzah, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is to begin the day after Passover. And it's a continuous seven-day festival. Since Pesach was eventually, by the time of Deuteronomy, fused with Matzah, it's often spoken of today as the eight-day festival of Passover, or as the eight-day festival of Matzah. So Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread have become virtually interchangeable terms, even though technically and biblically that's not accurate. Now, in the original ordinances of Passover, and then separately, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover was to occur on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, and the seven days of matzah were to begin on the 15th and end on the 21st. Now, originally, Passover was kind of a private family observance. The Passover lamb, or better ram, was to be killed, butchered, and eaten by individual families at their own homes. It was not necessary for a priest to officiate any part of that ritual. In fact, recall that one of the requirements of the Passover is that the ram is roasted over a fire as the only approved method of cooking it. Why over a fire? Probably because it was simulating a burnt offering. But while most temple altar offerings were completely burned up with fire, this private in-home Passover ram sacrifice was cooked with fire and it was meant to be food for the Israelites. Now notice I said private home observance as regards the Passover. What we have been studying in chapter 28 and will soon in 29 are public sacrifices. Sacrifices that occurred at the temple. Sacrifices that were officiated over by priests. On the other hand, the Feast of Matzah, as we see it in Numbers, is to have official public sacrificial status performed at the temple by priests. So that meant, naturally, people had to make a journey. They had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem or in earlier times to wherever the tabernacle happened to be in order to comply with this law. Now, because the first these, these two feasts, Matzah and Passover, became fused into one. People brought their Passover lambs with them when they went to the temple. 
to be slaughtered by a priest since they had to be there for the Feast of Matzah anyway. They kind of killed two birds with one stone. It's, it's also not unlike the idea that Christians, Gentiles, for hundreds of years have usually preferred to be married in a church. There's utterly no Bible command that this happen. But in our way of thinking, it kind of adds a more solemn and spiritual element to the wedding to have it in a church. It was the same idea with the Passover lamb. It's not required that it be killed under the supervision of a priest, but it seemed to lend some extra sanctity to the occasion by doing it. And as a result, public ovens for roasting the lambs were eventually placed all over Jerusalem, hundreds and hundreds of them, to enable those who came from far away and brought their lambs there to roast them and eat them after they were ritually killed at the temple. Again, this was not a a Torah requirement. It was just kind of a nicety. Now notice also that the importance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is underscored by requiring the same amount of extra sacrifices on each of the seven days of matzah. Now in verse 26... The sacrificial requirements for the Feast of Weeks is laid down. Now, this occasion is today called Shavuot among the Hebrews, or what's the alternate name? Pentecost, right. A Greek word among Christians. This feast comes seven weeks plus one day, 50 days, after the Feast of Matzah. Now, as all of these festivals are agricultural-based. Shavuot was celebrated at the conclusion of the barley harvest, which was also the beginning of the wheat harvest. It was a summer festival, or at least very late spring. That was also a public festival, meaning it too required a journey to the temple. Meaning, that there were sacrifices that had to be officiated over by the priests. Interestingly, this is another one of those instances where the requirement to make a pilgrimage to the temple is omitted from the Ezekiel protocol of sacrifice for the end times in the millennial kingdom periods. Probably because of the decreased role and purpose of priests for that age. And the reality that Messiah... God is now present on earth. And just as with the new moon festivals, and each day of the Feast of Matzah, the same number of sacrifices was required for Shavuot. Let's move on to Numbers 29. Numbers chapter 29. In the seventh month on the first day of the month, You're to have a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. It is a day for blowing the shofar for you. Prepare a burnt offering to make a fragrant aroma for Adonai. One young bull, one ram, seven male lambs in their first year and without defect. With their grain offering consisting of fine flour mixed with olive oil. Six quarts for the bull, four for the ram, two for each of the seven lambs. Also one male goat is a sin offering to make atonement for you. This is to be in addition to the burnt offering for Rosh Hodesh 
with its grain offering, the regular burnt offering with its grain offering, and their drink offerings according to the rule for them. And this will be a fragrant aroma, an offering made by fire to Adonai. On the tenth day of this seventh month, you are to have a holy convocation. You are to deny yourselves. And you're not to do any kind of work. But you are to present a burnt offering to Adonai to make a fragrant aroma. One young bull, one ram, seven male lambs in their first year. They're to be without defect for you. With their grain offering, fine flour mixed with olive oil, six quarts for the bull, four for the ram, two quarts each uh, for the seven lambs. Also one male goat as a sin offering. In addition to the sin offering for atonement and the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and their drink offerings. On the 15th day of the seventh month, you are to have a holy convocation. Don't do any kind of ordinary work. And you are to observe a feast to Adonai for seven days. You are to present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, bringing a fragrant aroma to Adonai. It is to consist of 13 young bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs in their first year. They're to be without defect. With their grain offering, fine flour mixed with olive oil, six quarts for each of the 13 bulls, four for each of the two rams, two for each of the 14 rams. Also a male goat is a sin offering in addition to the regular bird offering with its grain and drink offerings. On the second day, you are to present 12 young bulls, Two rams, 14 male lambs in the first year without defect with the grain and drink offerings for the bulls, rams, and lambs according to their number in keeping with the rule. Also one male goat is a sin offering in addition to the regular burnt offering, it's grain offering and drink offering. On the third day, 11 bulls. Two rams, 14 male lambs in their first year without defect with the grain and drink offerings for the bulls, rams, and lambs according to their number in keeping with the rule. Also, one male goat is a sin offering in addition to the regular bird offering with its grain and drink offerings. On the fourth day, ten bulls, two rams, fourteen male lambs in their first year without defect with the grain and drink offerings for the bulls, rams, and lambs according to their number in keeping with the rule. Also, one male goat is a sin offering in addition to the regular bird offering with its grain and drink offerings. On the fifth day, nine bulls. Two rams, 14 male lambs in their first year without defect with the grain and drink offerings for the bulls, rams, and lambs according to their number in keeping with the rule. Also, one male goat is a sin offering in addition to the regular burnt offering with its grain and drink offerings. On the sixth day, eight bulls. Two rams, 14 male lambs in their first year without defect with the grain and drink offerings for the bulls, rams, and lambs according to their number in keeping with the rule. Also, one male goat is a sin offering in addition to the regular bird offering with its grain and drink offerings. On the seventh day, seven bulls. Two rams, 14 male lambs in their first year without defect with the grain and drink offerings for the bulls, rams, and lambs according to their number in keeping with the rule. Also, one male goat is a sin offering in addition to the regular bird offering with its grain offering and drink offerings. On the eighth day, you are to have a festive assembly. You're not to do any kind of ordinary work, but you are to present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, giving a fragrant aroma to Adonai, one bull, one ram, seven male lambs in the first year without defect, with the grain and drink offerings for the bull, the ram, and the lambs according to their number, in keeping with the rule. Also, one male goat is a sin offering in addition to the regular bird offering with its grain and drink offerings. You are to offer these to Adonai at your designated times, in addition to your vows and voluntary offerings. Whether these are your bird offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings, or peace offerings.
Okay. We're only going to hit the highlights of this chapter because all the details about all these various kinds of sacrifices we've already covered in depth back in Leviticus. I'm going to assume you know this. If you don't, you can go back to Leviticus and pick up the CTs or something. Okay. This chapter continues the holy calendar of public sacrifices. But now we move into the sacred seventh month. And basically, we have three sacred feasts in the first month. And then we have one um, in between that and the seventh month. Okay. And in verse 1 of chapter 29, the Lord instructs that the first day of the seventh month, there's to be a, it's to be a very special occasion. One where the horn, it says, is to be sounded. Now in Hebrew it says, it's, the, it's a day of Yom Teruah. Alright? A day of blowing horns. Therefore it has come to be known as the Feast of Trumpets. Now, Part of the key to understanding what this special occasion signifies is embedded in the significance of the number seven. Think about how a week operates. The first day of the week obviously begins each and every week and is nothing special, no special observances assigned to that day. But the seventh day is very special because it's a Sabbath day, an especially holy day according to the Lord. Well, the seventh month is like the Sabbath month. Not that the seventh month is an entire month of rest, but it is the seventh cycle of the moon since the beginning of the religious calendar year. It is the seventh month since the beginning of months for a new year, and as such, it's especially holy. So it is right along God's established pattern the seventh of anything always holds special significance. Now, the fir- this, this first day of the seventh month of the year is also called Rosh Hashanah, meaning the head of the year. It's Jewish New Year. Okay, But since it's also the first day of a new month or a new moon, it also holds additional significance. The most ancient Babylonian calendars indicate that the seventh month of the year is generally the first month of the agricultural year. And even more, the 50-year jubilee year that God has ordained is to commence on Rosh Hashanah, or also known as Yom Teruah. Now, because this is an especially holy day, it has its own dedicated series of sacrifices, which are added to the normal new moon sacrifices. Then ten days later, on the tenth day of that seventh month, verse 7 speaks of yet another sacred occasion, another God-ordained biblical feast. This one is perhaps the most sober, yet, in its own way, the most joyous feast of the seventh. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This is the one day per year that the high priest was permitted 
to enter the Holy of Holies in the sanctuary. And the purpose of that entry was to bring blood to sprinkle onto the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, Ark of the Covenant and on other areas of the temple in order to cleanse it and to purify it from defilement. Because God's dwelling place has now suffered a whole year's worth of human contact. The celebration is confined to the temple itself and performed only by the high priest. The ordinary Hebrews do not go to the temple on this day. Now for several days leading up to Yom Kippur, much fasting and praying and contemplating their sins before God has gone on. But upon Yom Kippur, atonement is attained. The people are forgiven. Now they can move forward into the new year without their sins hanging over their heads. Now, this is a time, the Bible says, of self-denial. No food, no drink, no gain from working, not even any sexual activity. The ten days that connect the first day of the seventh month, Rosh Hashanah, Jewish New Year, and the tenth day, of the seventh month, Yom Kippur, are called the High Holy Days. And still, with both of these deeply moving and important feast days in the seventh month, there is yet another feast to come. The granddaddy of them all. It is this feast that's spoken of in chapter 29, verse 12, the Feast of Sukkot also known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. This is the third and last of the pilgrimage festivals, whereby a male of the age of accountability must go to the temple to celebrate and sacrifice. This agriculturally based feast marked the end of the agricultural year. When the final bits of that of the field harvests were gathered before waiting for planting and then the rain cycle to start all over again. Now, the amount and kind of sacrifices that were required for this feast tell us just how important it is. Five times as many bulls and twice as many lambs and rams are offered for sacrifice during the eight days of Sukkot than in the days of the Feast of Matzah. On the surface, this festival is all about giving thanks to the Lord for sustaining them for the previous year. But underneath it all, this is about the final ingathering, not of grain, but of all those who have given their hearts to Yeshua and their trust to God Almighty. You know, the pilgrims who came to America recognized this and modeled our Thanksgiving holiday after it. Yes, our Thanksgiving is a religious holiday through and through, but I don't think anybody would know it anymore, would we? Now, although we say that Sukkot is an eight-day festival. Technically, it's really only seven. It's, it, it's seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles immediately followed by an extra Sabbath day. And it is also a day of congregating in fellowship and religious ceremony. 
Now, the feast has a very unique schedule of ritual sacrifice. It begins on the first day by offering 13 bulls, the most expensive of all the animals. And then over a period of seven days, the sacrifice is reduced by one bull each day, so that on the first day of Sukkot, 13 bulls are sacrificed, the second day, 12, so on and so forth, and by the seventh day of Sukkot, seven bulls are sacrificed. And then all the quantities, though, of other sacrificial animals, grains, and wine remains the same every day. Only the amount of bulls change. Why 13 bulls? You know, usually when we have sacrifices on behalf of Israel, the number is 12. It's my opinion that the 13 signifies the 12 tribes of Israel plus the tribe of Levi. The priestly tribe. Remember the tribe of Levi was separated away from Israel by the Lord for special service to him. And they weren't to be counted among Israel anymore. But here we have the reuniting of Levi with Israel, something that is probably going to occur in the millennial kingdom. And of course, when you add up the number of bulls sacrificed over the entire seven-day period, it comes to 70. Seven times ten. There's that seven again. The rabbis say that the 70 represents all the nations of the world. Isn't that interesting? The rabbinical tradition says the grandest of all the feasts, the final of all the feasts, has a significant element of it that involves the world in general and not just Hebrews. Now, from a prophetic standpoint, the Feast of Tabernacles represents that time of final ingathering of believers at the end of days. It's that time when the Lord gathers all who are his, destroys the remainder, and it's the entry into the thousand-year reign of Messiah that we typically call the Millennial Kingdom. Understanding the Lord's ordained sacrifices and his ordained biblical feasts and all that has happened and is about to happen in the near future is going to make a lot more sense to us when we understand these things. Next week we'll begin Numbers chapter 30.